The Guardian. The bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers, the sale of Merrill Lynch to Bank of America, and word of trouble with the world's largest insurance company, American International Group. Tell you about our top story today, which is of course J.P. Morgan saying it will buy cash strap Bear Stearns for about two dollars a share in an all stock deal. The purchase values Bear Stearns at just two hundred and thirty-six million dollars. Just fourteen months ago, the bank was worth around twenty-two billion. The Dow Jones Industrial Average plunged more than four hundred and ninety points. It is the sixth largest point drop ever. And they're worth showing since the aftermath of the September 11th attacks. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Adit Chakravorty. During the banking crisis, some of the greatest names in Wall Street crashed and burned. But Goldman Sachs survived, just as it survived the Great Depression of the 1930s. Critics say that it did so in ways that stretched the boundaries of ethics on Wall Street. And now the bankers' friends in high places have started to abandon them. That's according to a new book by William Cohen called Money and Power. Of all the momentous decisions that Goldman, nearly uniquely among Wall Street investment banks, had been making to curb drastically its exposure to what the firm was increasingly convinced would be a near-complete collapse of the mortgage market, the decision to mark down significantly its own residual mortgage-related portfolio in the spring of 2007 would reverberate the most profoundly through the metaphorical canyons of Wall Street, touching off one conflagration after another for the next 18 months until Wall Street itself nearly collapsed in September and October 2008. The firm knew its marks would shock its clients and counterparties, and it braced itself for some anger, since the Goldman marks would sooner or later have to be matched by others with similar securities in their portfolio. Josh Birnbaum was not a salesman, so he was not on the front lines of the calls made to clients. Definitely some people were shocked, Birnbaum said. Some people started saying, conspiracy theory, Goldman Sachs, oh, you guys are short, you're just trying to drive the market down. The reality was, though, that at that point in time, it wasn't completely known in the market that we were short. Up until probably March, I'd say the consensus on Wall Street was that Goldman Sachs was long. We did a fantastic job of not letting the street know which way we were going. He joins me now in the studio and we have alongside him The Guardian's financial editor, Niels Prattley. William, the book's called Money and Power, How Goldman Sachs Came to Rule the World. How did it? Well, uh, the rise of Goldman Sachs parallels sort of the rise of Wall Street generally uh, and the rise of Wall Street as sort of an engine of capitalism. And so as capitalism became sort of the dominant mode of economic organization across the world, Wall Street was only too happy to provide, you can't have capitalism without capital. And so Wall Street was only too happy to provide the capital. I mean, you got to give Wall Street credit. It's a very efficient way of distributing capital to those, from those who have it to those who need it in a very efficient uh, way. And of course, Wall Street is only too happy to uh, take its slice of the pie. Uh, Goldman, uh, you know, has been around for 142 years. It's sort of the ultimate survivor. It's been in and out of trouble its whole existence. So uh, uh, merely by surviving, it, 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 it became dominant. Uh, and then, of course, to give them credit, uh, they uh, tended to attract uh, especially uh, gifted uh, individuals uh, who they indoctrinated in their way. And so they became a leader across many different business lines, and not only a leader, but uh, 
frankly, widely admired. I worked on Wall Street for 17 years, and uh, no matter which firm I worked at, uh, we always wanted to be like Goldman Sachs. So it's a combination of the rise of Wall Street uh, and capitalism generally throughout the world, and then Goldman in the last you know, 30, 40 years has been at the top of Wall Street, uh, and so therefore, by the transitive property or something like that, it became the dominant Wall Street firm, and you know, Wall Street became the dominant way that capital was distributed throughout the world, and so it became the dominant player in the way capital was distributed around the world. Niels, the rise of finance in both America and Britain is an old story to us now, but there was nothing inevitable about the rise of Goldman Sachs, was there? No, probably not. I mean, I mean, looking at it from a UK perspective, sort of post big bang here in the mid uh, in the mid 90s and the you know the arrival of the american investment banks it didn't take terribly long for goldman's to come pretty much top of that that pack probably for the you know for for, for many of the reasons that sort of william explains i mean they just seem to have smarter people but uh, you know as, as william also said there's quite a lot of scandals that they incurred in london like uh, the entanglement with the uh, with uh, robert maxwell you know we won which was a big yeah. big story at the time and that was very messy and i think you know in those days you wouldn't you, you know you probably wouldn't have bet perhaps going, going going back a little bit more for for goldman to be top of the pile and then the um, the losses they incurred in london in which was what 94 wasn't it yeah but you know this was also the firm uh, uh, th- that uh, when uh, the 1987 crash came and they had agreed to underwrite the bp ipo they went through with it uh, and didn't call like a force majeure and john weinberg said you know if we don't go through with this uh, we'll never uh, i think I think he said something like, be able to use the toilet again in uh, uh, in the UK. And it was, uh, you know, sort of an act of courage. I think they ended up losing uh, like something like $100 million uh, uh, going through with that underwriting. And, yeah, so, again, I, I, I'm, I'm certainly not an apologist for Goldman Sachs. Uh, but, you know, you have to look at, you know, their Maxwell scandal in 94. They almost lost their shirts, went out of business because of what the losses they incurred here in London. But, you know, occasionally they do things that are admirable like going through with the bp deal whether it's greece fiddling its public finances fabrice touré lying about subprime selling or colonel Gaddafi losing all his money there's always the involvement of goldman sachs somewhere along the chain well when you are top of the heap uh, people a like to write about you especially if it can be done in a negative way especially you know i think in in the u.s i don't know whether this is the same in the uk but in the u.s we, we like to build up uh, sort of our idols, and then we like to tear them down. And now we're sort of into the phase of tearing down Goldman Sachs. But because they are the leader, uh, they obviously get involved in a lot of different uh, businesses uh, and and business lines and deals. I mean, you know, they're the leader, and that means they are involved in a lot of deals. And so often not all those deals work out, and if they don't work out, they become newspaper stories. The, the, the other thing, though, to remember, and, and this is one thing that I, was frankly a revelation to me when I wrote the book, is just how often the firm in its 142 years was in and out of trouble. It's been in and out of trouble its entire existence. And in fact, I think it's part of its DNA to get into trouble and then to get out of trouble. And it, it, you know, it's both good at getting into it and good at getting out of it. And I think that's, you know, you're seeing that, again, fall into place this go-round. I mean, they've been around for 142 years, so it's a long time. Niels, William's giving Goldman Sachs far too easy a ride here. There's an awful lot of lobbying that goes on to keep Goldman's number one, isn't there? Yeah, there is. I mean, I, and, you know, one thing, be, uh, maybe William can answer this one. I mean, there, I mean, one of the things you point out in the book is that, um, 
Goldman Sachs's uh, um, entree to to Washington and to U.S. Uh, political circles does not seem to be what it was these days. Is that a long term risk for the firm? I mean, does it, does it change things? Because because you, I mean, you know, the assumption being that one of the one of the ways that um, maybe has enabled it to get out of trouble so many times is, is by having friends in high places. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, so again, I mean, I don't know. Again, I feel like I'm being put in a position of apologizing for Goldman Sachs, which is not a position yeah. that I'm particularly comfortable with. But the fact of the matter is that Wall Street bankers and executives have been trying to become Treasury Secretary or important positions in Washington uh, for more than 100 years. Okay, so this revolving door has been going around for a long time. Uh, 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 you know, we think about Goldman and we as referred to as government sacks because, say, in the last 25 years, they, years, they have been especially good at getting their top people into important positions in Washington. And of course, uh, you know, whether it's Hank Paulson or Bob Rubin. So, uh, th- th- you know, and part of the reason is because uh, the Goldman has a definite up and out policy. They have very bright people. They get their time in the sun. Uh, they're there, you know, they're there getting, get, lapping up the sun's rays for, you know, seven or eight years at the top. And then it's time to move on. Uh, they're forced to move on. Unlike other firms where people just stay and stay and stay and stay, like Dick Fold, he wasn't going anywhere until they were moved him, you know, with, with, with a crane. Uh, but uh, others at Goldman, they recognize sort of this up and out policy. And, they, and then there's this desire on their part to, quote, you know, give something back. I mean, you know, it's not particularly idealistic, although they make it sound that way. Uh, and, and I think, you know, G- Goldman has just been particularly good at getting their people in these positions. Now, I think that uh, has changed. I don't expect Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO of Goldman, to be Treasury Secretary anytime soon. But, you know, Mario Draghi is going to be the head of the European Central Bank. He's former Goldman. The head of the World Bank is former Goldman. I believe the head of the Canadian Central Bank is former Goldman. Uh, the head of the uh, uh, Commodities Future Trading Commission is former Goldman. And you can go up and down Whitehall and find plenty of people who've been through Goldman Sachs. Exactly correct. And part of it is because there's this indoctrination of the firm of, of public service and, and, and giving back, you know, uh, which is actually, you know, as part of a myth of Wall Street generally of, you know, this desire for public service. I mean, when I worked at Lazard and, you know, Felix Roten was the ambassador to France, but only because he couldn't become Treasury Secretary and Steve Ratner, the same thing, was car are only because he couldn't become Treasury Secretary. So this tradition has been going a long time. Uh, Goldman, uh, you know, the New York Times sort of coined this uh, phrase government sacks, and it's now, uh, at first it was just an observation uh, that they had a lot of people uh, who were going into government, and it was sort of grudging admiration. Uh, But as the crisis unfolded, it became sort of a negative, and people assumed that they were getting something that nobody else was getting. But I suppose what the phrase government sacks picks up on is that Goldman Sachs is an incredibly successful business run by incredibly clever people in an era when fortune is favoured Wall Street. But how much politicking has it done? Again, this isn't just unique to Goldman Sachs. Wall Street firms spend a tremendous amount of capital, dollars, lobbying Washington and making sure if their firm's going to get into trouble, they can get out of trouble. Wall Street has always been a dangerous place. I think that's the first line of this book. Firms have been going in and out of business their whole existence on Wall Street and and in the city here. I mean, you know, the, the so-called great UK merchant banks, I think, basically are, are all gone. Wall Street has always been a dangerous place. So if you're in business and you've been in business for 142 years and it's been incredibly profitable and successful for you 
uh, for you and your partners, and hopefully for your clients to some extent too, then the last thing you want to do is go out of business. So you'll use everything in your power to make sure that you avoid going out of business. And nothing will make you go out of business faster than if the firm is indicted for criminal misbehavior. And so they're going to do, you know, now this is, you know, what Senator Levin uh, has referred to the Justice Department and the SEC, you know, that perhaps the firm should be criminally indicted or investigated. You know, obviously, they're doing everything they can to make sure that doesn't happen. You know, let me just say that in the uh, post-vampire squid world that I live in... You're referring to the Rolling Stone profile, which referred to Goldman Sachs as a vampire squid. Was it stuffing its funnel forever into the face of humanity? Yes, that's a very good uh, summarization of the metaphor, which doesn't really mean anything. I mean, but uh, it's also very... Tweetable, yes, yes. Uh, but you know, ever since that came out in July of 2009, and now I've written my book, you know, if, if, if you don't sort of go for the indictment of Goldman Sachs, then somehow you're an apologist for Goldman Sachs, which seems to be my, my leitmotif for, for this interview. But the, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, I think because the, 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 the uh, uh, Senator Levin's letter to the Justice Department has not been released, his May 3rd letter, but but it's been, quote, reported that he was asking them to investigate whether these Goldman executives perjured themselves at his April 2010 hearing. Okay, so, it, it, you know, that seems to be the nature of the investigation. If that is, in fact, the nature of the investigation, should Goldman executives be indicted for perjury by, for lying to Congress in that hearing, uh, I'm not a lawyer, but I have a feeling perjury is a very high bar in terms of proving that. Uh, Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, is a Harvard Law School graduate and an ex-lawyer himself. Goldman has always been the most highly lawyered firm on Wall Street, i.e. always getting the most expensive, supposedly, and the best legal advice. I assure you, before that hearing, they were incredibly lawyered up. And so whether or not anybody could ever prove whether they, quote-unquote, perjured themselves uh, is something that is would be extremely difficult to prove. Whether or not gold, maybe, maybe what Senator Levin is, in fact, saying is it should be illegal for Goldman to do what they did which in the crisis, which is to make a major proprietary bet against the mortgage market at the same time that they continued to sell mortgage-backed securities to clients and investors around the world. Now, maybe that is what he's so pissed off about that it should be uh, a, a crime. I don't know that it is a crime. Maybe it should be a crime. It certainly doesn't smell right to me. If you're making a big institutional proprietary bet against the mortgage market beginning in December of 2006, for you to continue to sell mortgage-backed securities at 100 cents on the dollar to your clients throughout 2007 or, or till mid-2007 when that market fell apart, so for six months, reeks to me of bad ethical behavior. You mentioned the subprime crisis. What people want to know is how come no really big scalp has been taken by lawmakers? Well, it's a, it's 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 a you know one of those questions that gets a lot of airtime in the in the U.S. Uh, 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 you know, I hope you guys have better things to think about over here. But you know, since since ground zero of the crisis was Wall Street and the U.S. Uh, and it was a totally self-inflicted wound, and it didn't have to happen. Uh, that's a very good question. And uh, there have been two you know the two Bear Stearns hedge fund managers were indicted. Uh, they had a trial, and they were found innocent or not guilty. And in fact, one of the jurors at the trial had, the, you know, the gumption to say she wishes she had allowed these two guys to invest her money. 
you know, which I found to be an incredible statement considering these two guys lost uh, a billion and a half dollars of their investors' money, and that which then led to the collapse of Bear Stearns. So that was the, you know, usually when prosecutors eventually do indict, you know, a grand jury does indict people in this and try to blame them with this, and then it doesn't work out, that has sort of has a chilling effect. Uh, so then what happened is the prosecutors in the Southern District of New York, Preet Bharara, went after Raj Rajaratnam for insider trading and had great success getting guilty verdicts out of that. So now that that's pretty much over, uh, now people are once again wondering, why haven't you uh, indicted some of these guys who were responsible for, for the crisis? And you know, their answer is, you know, we've looked at it, we've investigated it, you don't know the evidence that we've seen. You know, pr- again, proving a criminal behavior as opposed to civil behavior, you know, that there was their intent to be deceptive and to deceive people and, and you know, is, I mean, in my gut, it smacks of being very hard. One has an intuitive sense that these people should be held responsible, but ha- but and none of them have, which is extremely disturbing. No Dick Fold, no Angelo Mazzillo, no Jimmy Kane, uh, and no Stan O'Neill. None of these guys have been held accountable for what happened here, except that, of course, they've you know walked off with tens, in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars in severance pay and their ruined reputations. Niels, I suppose one thing that's also a bit of a puzzle is how Goldman Sachs, like Barclays actually to some extent, bounced back so quickly from what was seen as kind of an an existential threat to the entire banking industry. Yeah, up to a point. I mean, you know, they they came out of it um, um, better than the rest. Um, I mean, partly because of this big, 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 big short position that uh, is the, um, you know, the the contentious one. I mean, that I mean, they did hedge their position better than everybody else, you know, whether it was ethical or not, you know, whatever, you know, the outcome was pretty good for, for Goldman Sachs. Um, you, you know, have they bounced back better? Well, th- there was this 2009 into 2010, there was a big surge in investment banking revenues. But my impression is the last few quarters at Goldman's have been a bit weaker, uh, certainly than, than people are expecting. And that um, in some ways, the firm was, was was sort of struggling to sort of recapture its magic. And, you know, whether whether it's the kind of confidence has been hit by uh, the SEC investigation and, and, and everything else. But, it, you know, my impression is that it's not it's not winning so many victories as it used to. Is that, that your impression? Well, I'd say in the last few quarters. Isn't yeah, it? I think yeah. that's that's absolutely right. I mean, you would have expected them to be part of the Glencore IPO, and they weren't. You would have expected them to be part of the AT and T Deutsche Telekom mobile deal, and and they weren't. On the other hand, they're number one in the M and A league tables again. You know, in nineteen. 19- 30 after, you know, to go back to sort of ancient history in 1930, uh, as a result of their scandalous involvement in the Goldman Sachs Trading Corporation, uh, basically Goldman was out of business for five years. It took them five years to get their reputation back. Now, of course, they're a public company, and so it's much more public about whether or not quarter to quarter they're, they're putting up the numbers. Uh, so, you know, it, it's going to take them time. They have to not only adjust to you know, Wall Street's a big is is very much a confidence game, and people the confidence people had in Goldman Sachs has been it's not quite the same yeah. reputation as it had uh, for for a long time, and it takes time to overcome that. The good news is that people tend to have short memories on Wall Street, uh, so that that'll probably fix itself rel- relatively quickly. But they also have to adapt 
to the the uh, you know the the life after the Dodd Frank law, and it's not exactly sure what they can and can't do. It's still not exactly clear. But but Goldman has always been you know the corollary of getting in and out of trouble so often throughout their 142 year existence is that they've learned how to adapt to new business environments very quickly. They're extremely adaptable. They're, they're, they're not wedded to any, and, and again, I hate to, you know, there's some people who think they should just be completely put out put out of business, and, and you know, maybe, maybe, maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong, but until that happens, or if that happens, they're going to do what they do well, which is adapt to the new business environment that they're confronted with, and figure out ways to make money again. I, I think there's sort of quite a lot of people, in, certainly in the city in London, who are quite enjoying Goldman's distress. I mean, there's a head of one of the, one of the big fund managers over here he said to me over lunch recently, he said, you know, you've got to understand that we all hate Goldman Sachs as well. You know, the, uh, and, you know, they feel ripped off on by investment banks in general over uh, underwriting fees and on, uh, on uh, rights issues and so on. So there, there's quite a lot of kind of, you know, there, there are not many friends, friends around to try and, you know, help them in this uh, moment of relative distress. William, what's yeah. Sophisticates case against? I mean, you talked a lot about kind of the crudity of public debate about banks and Goldman Sachs, and I, I don't disagree with that. But what's the Sophisticates case against Goldman Sachs? So, I mean, I think if you, as I wrote, wrote in the book, I mean, one, one thing that I found especially troubling, and this is, this is, you know, very subtle, but also very potent, okay? So, can you imagine if you could put on a trade, as Goldman Sachs did in December of 2006, that would make Goldman Sachs billions of dollars while having the effect, although maybe not the initial intention, but having the effect of putting most of your competitors out of business and causing them to lose billions of dollars and then threatening the whole system. I mean, basically, what, what Goldman did was, in making this big bet against the mortgage market, uh, they, they did two things. Number one, they put themselves in a position to benefit hugely if and when the mortgage market collapsed, which it did. The other thing they did is because they are, quote-unquote, a mark-to-market firm, and this is where the sort of subtlety comes in. So in December of 2006, they started to put on this big short bet against the mortgage market. Throughout 2007, the marks that they put on these very same mortgage securities, which are thinly traded, it's not like trading a share of, of GE, you know, uh, you know, there's a very tight bid in the ask. These things are very thinly traded. It's sort of like, you know, they're worth what people say they're worth. Goldman's marks were consistently lower than every other firm's marks on the street. Now, they marked those, mark, the, those securities lower. They turned out to be right which if you're a Goldman hater is, is very frustrating, but they turned out to be right. But they didn't tell the people in the market that the reason they were marking them so low is because they had a big short on and they were going to, they could effectively move the market lower, knowing that they were the only firm that was going to benefit from it. And conversely, not only were they going to benefit, but they were going to put the huge squeeze on every other firm in the market that was that also had similar securities that by and large was going to have to mark these securities down but without a corresponding short bet so it was going to absolutely wipe out their equity accounts which is exactly what happened i, I think they knew that they were going to uh, make a lot of money when the mortgage market collapsed and i think they had a pretty good sense it was going to and, and uh, but whether they it would have the effect that it had on bear stearns lehman brothers merrill lynch uh, AIG, Citigroup, as it did, and basically put all of their competitors out of business is is something that even they could not have uh, wished for. But if you had said to Goldman Sachs uh, in 2007, beginning of 2007, uh, not only 
are 60% of your competitors going to go out of business. But you are also going to be able to back your truck up to the Fed window and get as much money as you can possibly carry away for close to 0% interest and use that to, you know, to supercharge your business plan going forward. They would have thought you were crazy. But that is, in fact, exactly what has happened. 60% of Goldman's competitors have gone away, and they are a bank-holding company and can back up to the Fed window and get virtually 0% financing for everything that they want to do. I mean, do you, do you agree with this um, sort of common characterization that, you know, the firm has moved from being you know, long-term greedy to short-term greedy, <laughs> which, is the, which is often said about Goldman's? Uh, I think they're both long and short-term greedy. I mean, yes, yeah, I think they're both. I think they're just plain greedy. Uh, and, you know, when, when you're a public company, you have no choice but being short-term greedy. I mean, you have to put the numbers up every quarter or else the market's going to slam you. I mean, when they were a private company, they could just be long-term greedy because there was no short-term for these guys. It, it was a yearly thing. Now they have to be quarterly greedy. I think they're just plain greedy, which is what people on Wall Street are. I mean, they're in it for the money. Let's face it. And, and they're incredibly risk averse, by the way. If you were a real risk taker, you would have your own hedge fund or, you, or you'd be an entrepreneur. I mean, I think people on Wall Street are the most risk averse people on the face of the planet because where else can you get paid all the money that they get paid for taking no personal risk with any of your own capital? Yeah. It's an extraordinary uh, system. No wonder people want to work there. And no wonder once they get there, they don't want to leave, and which is probably why they end up having to fire so many people all the time. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. My thanks to Niels Prattley and William Cohen. William's book is published by Alan Lane and it's out now. You can leave your thoughts on this week's podcast on our blog, guardian.co.uk forward slash the business. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Elise Shackforty. Thanks for listening. forward slash audio.